Welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times. A look at the book of Revelation that we have been filming during the COVID-19 pandemic in the year 2020. And as you can see from the Christmas tree behind me, we are coming to the end of the year, to the end of 2020. Uh, when this airs, it will be just a few days prior to the new year. And as we come to the close of the year, we are also coming to the close of the book of Revelation. And we will look at chapter 22, the final chapter in the book, the final chapter in all of Scripture today. There's a famous scene in the, the movie, the musical Sound of Music, where there's a storm raging outside and the smaller children are becoming afraid and, and Maria sings them a song. She sings them, these are a few of my favorite things. And it's a song that has become uh, somewhat well-known even outside of the movie, uh, spawning uh, a bunch of uh, covers by different groups and singers throughout the years. But what Maria was attempting to do with that song, these are a few of my favorite things, is somewhat what John uh, is doing here in this chapter, what he has been doing throughout this book. And so uh, we'll, we'll call this final message in the book of Revelation. These are a few of my favorite things. Because what John is doing is what Maria was doing, getting the children's mind off of the storm raging around them, calming them in the midst of that storm, uh, not by making the storm go away, but by fixing their minds on something different, fixing their minds on something better. And that is what John has been doing throughout this book. What he continues to do here in chapter 22 as he finishes the book off is that as we live in these uncertain times, as every uh, generation of Christian throughout the church age from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, as we live in these end times and these uncertain times, as storms rage around us of persecution and plague and famine and uh, suffering and loss and all the things that we experience in this life. What John is doing is not making the storm go away, but he is fixing our eyes, fixing our attention on something outside of the storm. And in this case, something bigger than the storm, something that rules over the storm, or rather someone who rules over the storm. And so as we come to the final chapter, as we have seen the defeat of the beast a few chapters ago, when we saw the return of Christ and we saw the new creation last week in chapter 21, uh, and now we, we see uh, almost some wrap-up wrap summary points of how we can have certain comfort. What should we be looking to for comfort in the midst of the storms, in the midst of the uncertain times? That rage around us. And so if you have your Bibles, please follow along as I read Revelation chapter 22. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, 
because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who has shown them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy still be holy. Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city, which are written about in this book. He who testifies about these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. Well, as there has been throughout this book, this chapter has a lot going on. There's a lot in this chapter, and we are not going to cover every single thing in this chapter. Uh, Our point throughout this series and throughout this book has not been to figure out every single detail, to figure out every single prophecy, to find those one-to-one correlations but rather to take that bird's eye view, uh, a flyover view of the book to get the main points that give us certain comfort in uncertain times. Because this chapter, just like the book, was written to Christians living in the first century who were living with storms all around them. Uh, It is written to Christians living in the 21st century with storms all around us and every generation in between and every generation to come after us until the Lord Jesus does finally return. And so with that being said, we're actually not going to look at verses one through five uh, at all here today. Uh, They actually fit better with chapter 
21, and I, I meant to include them last week in chapter 21 and, and forgot to do so. So if you want to know what the main themes of verses 1 through 5 are, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's uh, podcast on chapter 21. But here in chapter 22, verses 6 through the end of the chapter, we are going to look at uh, really four themes that are brought out in this chapter that should give us comfort, where we should look for comfort. Uh, just like uh, Maria von Trapp singing the songs to the children and the sound of music to get their minds off of the storm around them and on to better things. Uh, these are the things that we should find comfort in. They're the things that we should sing about. They're the things that we should focus on instead of the storms around us. So the first of those is that we should find comfort in the certainty of God's promise. We should find comfort in the certainty of God's promise. Verses 6 and 7 say, Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. These verses, and especially verse 6, uh, are actually important for understanding this chapter, so important for understanding this book. Um, it's not often a, a verse that's brought out to help us understand the book, but I think it, it really does help us understand this book. Because for 2,000 years, Christians have been looking to the book of Revelation, and especially here these last couple chapters, and hearing these promises that, that Jesus is coming soon, and wondering how soon could it be since it's been 2,000 years. And Christians have looked at the various symbols in this book as we've talked about throughout and tried to find one-to-one -one correlations and tried to come up with charts and graphs and timelines and, and tried to pinpoint when and where Christ might return and what it might look like and who might be involved. And I've said throughout that I think that's a, mistaken, uh, that's a mistake to read the book that way. And I think this verse uh, tells us that. And I think this book helps us put, this verse helps us put the book in its proper place. Because he does say these words are faithful and true. That's, that's what we should find comfort in, that these words are faithful and true. We should find comfort in the certainty of God's promise, that what is written about in the book of Revelation will happen. God's promises will come to fruition because they are faithful and true, just as he is faithful and true. But faithful and true doesn't always doesn't necessarily mean what we sometimes take it to mean. And when we think faithful and true, we think exactly what is written down and how I picture it in my mind is exactly how God must then fulfill it in order to be faithful and true to his word. And what happens is that uh, we're not intending to, but really we make ourselves the interpreter of Scripture instead of the Spirit being the interpreter of Scripture. And we bind God by what our imagination is able to conjure up when we read the book. And yet what he says here in verse 6 is, The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. What this verse does is it puts revelation in the camp of the Old Testament prophets. And what we see in the Old Testament prophets is not necessarily just or even primarily uh, foretelling 
predicting the future, but rather foretelling, thus saith the Lord. And the prophets do contain things that let us know uh, about the future, let us know what God's plan is for the future. But it is always in order to say, thus saith the Lord for the present, to change behavior in the present. And the same thing I think is true for Revelation. There are predictive prophecies in Revelation, specifically these last few chapters, uh, especially chapters 21 and 22, are still future. But the point of all of the prophecies here, or at least one of the points, is to change our behavior in the presence, is thus saith the Lord. This is what I'm calling you to, and we see that even as we go through this chapter. But what it also means is that prophecies about Jesus' second coming are going to look like prophecies for his first coming. And now we have the benefit living after the New Testament, uh, after the cross. We have the Word of God, we have the New Testament completed, and we have the Holy Spirit uh, indwelling us. And with the Holy Spirit and with the New Testament written down, the Old Testament written down, uh, it can be easier, I think, than we even suspect to look back at those Old Testament prophecies and to see Jesus, to see how he came the first time. And we can almost get that chronological snobbery that, that C.S. Lewis talks about and look back at the Old Testament saints and wonder, well, how, could, how, how come they didn't get this? Why weren't people uh, expecting Jesus the way he came based on Isaiah 53, based on other Old Testament prophecies that seem to so clearly lay out what his first coming would be. That's precisely the point that without the New Testament, without the Holy, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, uh, it, it wasn't so obvious that the Old Testament prophecies were pointing to what they eventually pointed to. It, it wasn't as clear as sometimes we think it is. It was, it was there and now we can look back after the fact and see it there and see it relatively clearly there after the fact. But the people at the time reading it, they had their ideas of what it was going to look like. But their interpretation of those verses, their interpretation of Scripture wasn't the inerrant Scripture. It's Scripture that is without error. It is Scripture that is faithful and true. It is Scripture that is absolute, not my interpretation of it, not our interpretation of it. And so I think it's a mistake for us now in the 21st century in America to take our cultural context, put revelation through it, try and come up with those one-to-one correlations and say, well, see, this, this must be how exactly it will take place. These are the, this is the timeline, this is the graph, this is the chart, this is who the Antichrist will be, this is what the sign of the beast will be, and I've got it all figured out. The locusts are Apache helicopters, as we talked about, not really. But it's easy for us to, to think, well, my interpretation must be true. But I think John is intentionally moving us away from that thinking. When he says these words are faithful and true, but then connects them to the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament prophecies. Yes, we are comforted by the certainty of God's promise. But as Isaiah tells us, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. 
And that is the danger of approaching a book like Revelation, trying to find those one-to-one correlations, trying to come up with that timeline and that chart and that graph that will allow us to predict when and where and how Jesus will return. Is that it puts us in the driver's seat instead of putting God in the driver's seat. And then if God's promise is fulfilled in a way that we don't expect, well, suddenly God's promises aren't that certain. His words are not faithful and true. And yet we are comforted with the fact they are, because we are comforted with the certainty of God's promises. His words are faithful and true. The events in this book might not play out the way that we expect, but they will play out the way that God intends. And that is the point of the symbols. We're not meant to understand each and every single symbol. We're meant to understand the broad scope of what God is telling us, that he is on the throne, that Christ is returning, that the way of the cross is the way of victory. Those are the things, the themes that we've hit on all throughout this book. Those are the things that we're supposed to see and live out here in the midst of these uncertain times, that his words are faithful and true. And so we can be sure no matter what we're living through, no matter what suffering we're experiencing, that what we see in the book of Revelation uh, is playing out and will ultimately play out, and he will return to make all things new. And so we should first find comfort in the certainty of God's promise. Second, we should find comfort in the worship of our Creator. We should find comfort in the worship of our Creator. One of the incredible things about Scripture is how, uh, what a poor light it puts its own heroes in uh, as it writes about uh, the heroes of the faith throughout, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. We find another example of that here as the, the Bible ends in Revelation chapter 22. Because once again, here you have John who was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the, the inner circle of the inner circle of the disciples. He, for at least a couple of years, had traveled around with Jesus, lived with him, served with him, learned at his feet. He had been in this intimate friendship with him. Uh, then when Jesus is on the cross, he uh, tells John to take care of Mary, his mother, and for Mary to take care of of John and church history tells us that that John did do that and he and Mary uh, moved to Ephesus and John pastored the church in Ephesus and for decades you know this is the revelation is written in the 90s for almost six decades John has been uh, living in this intimate relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit leading churches and and writing books of the Bible and He gets this grand vision of God's plan for the earth. He gets this grand vision of who Jesus Christ is. And we get to the end of the book and he sees an angel and he's falling down to worship the angel. He's falling down to worship the created thing rather than the creator. And it's this reminder that all of us, this side of glory, are still prone to fall down and worship the creature rather than the creator. We're so prone to to try and worship God and stuff, and often stuff instead of God. And so John sees this angel and he falls down to worship, but the angel knows, the angel knows his place. And so the angel tells 
John in verse 9, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Worship God. That is the, the point of everything that John had seen. John hadn't been given this vision so he could glory in the vision. He hadn't encountered these heavenly beings so that he could glory in the heavenly beings. He hadn't been given all of this knowledge of things to come so that he could glory in his knowledge and make himself great. He was given this vision so that he could glory in God. He was given this vision so that he would worship God and worship God alone. And that is our comfort in these uncertain times, is that these uncertain times should very much reveal to us what we're worshiping. Both back in the spring when uh, the COVID crisis first started, and then again recently as things have uh, started to escalate again here in New Jersey where we're located, uh, one of the things that we uh, did with the men in our residential program is we we watched this message by uh, Matt Chandler on source and surface idols, um, on the things that we worship both on the surface and then those things that we uh, worship uh, on a deeper level, our source idols that fuel those surface idols. And one of the reasons why we did that is because these uncertain times, these times of crisis do start to reveal the things that we're putting our trust in. In the fall here at the Colony Chapel, I was preaching through the book of Lamentations. And one of the things I prayed uh, for myself and for the men in the program would be that God did reveal our idols, that he would reveal our idols to us, that he would take them from us. And I found him answering that prayer in my life. And I can't speak for everyone in the program. I know for some of the men as well, he answered that prayer, showing them their idols and starting to take them from them. We must not think that we're beyond the worship of idols, this side of glory. And we need to seek them out and have our eyes opened and confronted with them as John is here so that we're worshiping the right thing. And we're prone both when we have these Uh, experiences with God, when we have the spiritual growth, when we have the spiritual insight, the spiritual knowledge through his word to kind of make ourselves the point. And then we're also prone to when someone else has that, when there's someone who's gifted, when there's someone who has a lot of knowledge, when there's someone who's uh, a good preacher or a, a good pastor or whatever it may be, we put them up on the pedestal and we start to worship our fellow servants instead of worshiping God. But what verse, verses 8 and 9 tell us is that the whole point of every spiritual experience we have, the whole point of any kind of spiritual insight, spiritual knowledge, spiritual experience, is not that we would glory in the insight, the knowledge, the experience itself, not that we would glory in ourselves or encourage others to glory in us, but that we would glory in God. The angel tells John, worship God. That was the point of all of this, that John would come to know his creator more and be led to worship him more. That his increased knowledge would lead to increased worship. And it has often been said that theology that does not lead to doxology, that does not lead to worship, is not 
true theology. All of our knowledge, all of our experience, all of our insight should lead us to worship and to worship the creator and not the created thing. And of course, worship is not just uh, singing of songs, but it is an attitude of the heart. It is where we fix our attention. It's what we put our focus on. It's the uh, who we're doing things for. And so we see in verses 12 through 13, Jesus says, Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus called himself this back in chapter 1, and now he calls himself this again here at chapter 22, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the creator of all things, and he is the one whom all things were created for. He is the one who gives us life, and he is the the very meaning and purpose of our life. He's the one that holds all things together, and he is the one, the goal to which all of creation is moving. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who starts our faith in the one who finishes it and perfects it. We are saved by him as he enters into our humanity and becomes like us, and we are finally saved when we are perfected and then we become like him. He is the point of all of it. And so it's not just this generic worship God, and we can kind of picture this mere higher power as God and just pick an object and that's your higher power, that's your God. No, John is told to worship God, but then he's very quickly reminded who the God is that he is to worship. And it is the God revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The one who is the start of everything and the end of everything. He is the point of all of it. And that is the comfort in the certain comfort in these uncertain times is that we are to worship our creator as revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That when we don't know anything else, we know Jesus. When we don't have anything else, we have Jesus. That we might not be able to interpret the book of Revelation perfectly. We might not know what all the symbols mean. We might not know what's going to happen tomorrow. We might not know what the year 2021 holds. We might not know if it will be better than 2020 or if 2020 is just the prelude into a year that's even more chaotic. We don't know any of that. And that can be very uncomforting and uncomfortable. And so what we're reminded at the end of the book, at the end of scripture, is that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the point of everything. And so we will not probably have uh, the capacity as individuals to wrap our minds around all the different uh, political and economic issues of the day, all of the medical issues of the day. Uh, we can't prophesy what will uh, happen in the days ahead with any amount of certainty. But what we can do is know Jesus Christ and worship Him. 
And so we should find comfort in the certainty of God's promise. We should find comfort in the worship of our creator. Thirdly, we should find comfort in the forgiveness of our sins. We should find comfort in the forgiveness of our sins. Verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. At first glance, these verses might seem to be holding up a works-based morality, that uh, we are defined by what we do or don't do. And so we can either do something by washing our robes, or we can do something by uh, murdering and committing idolatry and sexual immorality. Um, And it could seem like it's something we need to do to, to stop sinning, and instead go and and wash our robes. Uh, But that's not what's going on here. The the contrast is between those who wash their robes and those who are still in their sin. Uh, But the ones who wash their robes, the emphasis isn't on them going and washing the robes, but on the fact that their robes are washed. And it really is defining the two groups of people, those who are allowed to enter the new creation and those who aren't. That those who are allowed to enter the new creation are those who have, as Jesus declared at the start of his ministry, repented and believed the gospel. That they have turned from their sorcery, their sexual immorality, their murder, their idolatry, their falsehood. That they have turned from those things and instead come to the cross to have their robes washed. That by faith they have turned, they have repented from their sin, and they have believed the gospel. The blood of Jesus Christ is enough to wash them clean of their sin, to to cleanse them from their sin. And this is what uh, John is reminding his readers as they come to the end of the book, that this ultimately is what it is about. That the gospel is still the forefront of our comfort and our hope. That our comfort and our hope is not in our willpower being strong enough, in uh, aligning with the right group of people and being born into the right country and voting for the right party or candidate. But rather, our comfort and hope lies in the fact that our robes have been washed, that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from our sins. And it is the fact that we are cleansed that we have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. It is on the merit of Jesus Christ and his blood, not on the fact that I was smart enough or wise enough or had enough willpower to turn away from my sin and instead go and wash my robe. But no, it's on the merit of the blood of Jesus Christ that I have any hope or comfort for the future at all. And so we must never forget, no matter what uh, we're going through in this world, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's a presidential election season, whatever it may be, that our hope ultimately uh, for any sense of future, for any sense of uh, the new creation is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we should find comfort in the forgiveness of our sins. And finally, 
we should find comfort in the imminence of Christ's return. We should find comfort in the imminence of Christ's return. Our comfort is not just that Christ is returning, it's that he is returning imminently. He is coming soon. As we said at the beginning of the book, the language of Revelation is more that he is already on his way. And he can arrive at any moment. And we see that here as the the book ends. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. It goes on in verse 20. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. This passage in recent years has very much struck me. Because it's not just that we have this hope held out that Jesus is coming and that he is coming soon. But we are actually uh, told in this passage that we should not only even be longing or hoping or expecting him to come. We should be crying out for him to, to come. We should be praying, come Lord Jesus. And I remember being struck by this as a, as a young believer. I came to Christ in my high school years and I struggled with this early in my faith because it seemed wrong to to call for Jesus to come. Uh, There was so much in life I hadn't experienced yet. Um, uh, There was concern over unbelievers that I loved who might not be saved if Jesus came back too soon. And yet the more I've grown in my faith, the more I have lived in this life, The more uncertainty I've seen, the more suffering I've experienced, the more uh, the Holy Spirit has taught my heart to cry out, Come, Lord Jesus. The more hope and comfort I have found that Jesus says in verse 20, Yes, I am coming soon. Not just that He is coming, but He is coming soon. He is on His way to rescue His bride. And that is where our hope and our comfort should be fixed. Because really, I know in my own life, and as I've uh, seen my brothers and sisters, both in person and on social media, and stories that I've heard, uh, we so often fix our hope and our comfort on, on other things, on earthly things, on things that will never be able to satisfy us. And that's why I've said, I think I've said it during this this series, I know I've said it other passages I've preached, and it can sound offensive at times, but it's not really. It's gospel truth that our hope is not to make America great again, because America is not our hope. Our hope is not that now Donald Trump is out of the office and Joe Biden will be inaugurated, because that is not where our hope lies. Our hope does not lie in Joe Biden any more than Donald Trump, in the Democratic Party any more than the Republican Party. Our hope only lies in Jesus Christ and His return. And we can't hope for those worldly things as our hope and hope for Christ to come back. 
And so when we pray things like make America great again, we're really telling Jesus, you know what? Stay up there in heaven. Don't come back yet. America's got this. But instead, I think our mindset should be much more like the prayer that we read in the Didache. And the the Didache is this early Christian discipleship manual. Uh, It used to be dated to the 2nd century. Uh, Now some scholars put it in the 1st century. So this might actually have been written before the book of Revelation. Um, Although the traditional date puts it maybe a generation or two after the book of Revelation. But in Didache chapter 10 verses 5 and 6, the prayer is, Remember, Lord, your church. Deliver her from evil. Make her complete in your love and gather her from the four winds into your kingdom you have prepared for her. For yours is the power and the glory forever. Let grace come. And let this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If anyone is holy, let him come. If anyone is not, let him repent. Maranatha, phrase that means come, Lord. Amen. That is where our hope is. That is what our prayer should be. Our comfort, certain comfort in these uncertain times is that grace is coming and this world is passing away. And so we should be praying, let grace come and let this world pass away. Let the United States of America pass away. Let my family pass away. Let my church pass away. Let my ministry pass away. Because for all of those things to pass away means that Jesus Christ comes. And so our prayer should be come Lord Jesus. Our prayer should be that he would be faithful and true to his word, that yes, he is coming soon. Because he is our hope. He is our comfort. And we should long for all of this to pass away, that he might come and make all things new. And so our hope is in his imminent return, is that he is already on his way and that he can show up at any minute. And so we do pray, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let grace come and let this world pass away. Thank you for joining us for Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times, not just today for chapter 22, but for the whole series. I hope that it has helped you to find that certain comfort, that it is not in anything that this world has to offer but it is only in the finished and perfect work of Jesus Christ.